Association. 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 That was such uber ponage. Hello, fellow nerds from the studios of WBNS-FM in Columbus, Ohio. This is the Nerd Association podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Barnett. And yes, this is normally where my uh, co-host Mark Finch would introduce himself, but we are doing things a little differently today, as we've talked about on this podcast before. There are certain properties which are my bread and butter, about which he knows very little, and when I pitched the episode that we're going to be talking about shortly, he said, hey, why don't you bring in some folks that know more about this than I do? So without further ado, two folks that know more about this property than Mark Finch are Adam Locke. Megal Vonden. Very good. There's a hint. Oh, no. And Jonah Smith. Oh, no. Hello. <laughs> Hello. And uh, we are talking today about something that I have been very much looking forward to. We will jump in per usual. What do you think of when I say... There was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar. You got to talk well, it's, on the it's, podcast. It's, it's the first sentence. It's the first sentence of? Of the Silmarillion. Yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay, we're excited. We're moving. Do, do you have any kind of emotional response to it at all? Uh, it's not really getting to the good parts yet. That's true enough. That's true. <laughs> so for those who are a little bit in the know, of course, one of the hot topics in nerd culture right now is The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, the new Amazon Prime series. And The Rings of Power is based on a text that has a reputation among nerd circles as being a sort of quote-unquote true badge of nerddom. It's one thing to have read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It's another thing to have read and understood as much as is possible in the case of this text, The Silmarillion, which is essentially a history book that was taken from the notes that Tolkien had written over the years about his about his creation, and eventually edited down after his death by his son, Christopher Tolkien, and and was sort of an indication of the fact that for many years, Christopher Tolkien's life work was just going to be to go through his father's notes and letters and publish everything. <laughs> so the Silmarillion is what starts that journey. So for each of you, what was your introduction to the Silmarillion? Obviously, big Lord of the Rings fans, but when did you take the next step of nerddom into reading the books? You know, I actually went the other way around. Really? I encountered the Silmarillion first, and then the rest of it sort of fell out from that. That's bonkers. I know. What? How old were you in the... Oh, man, I must have been 16, 17. Okay. And Jonah? Oh, uh, I was probably also in high school, I think, because I had a more traditional path of, like, I read the, the, the trilogy originally with my dad. Yeah. Um, and then got into the Silmarillion in high school because I had friends who were into it. So... That's... I suppose I should say I found The Hobbit first, but second on. Sure. Yeah. Gotcha. And that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. I, I read The Hobbit early, as one usually does, as, sure. as a preteen, and then The Lord of the Rings as a teenager. And I probably, The Silmarillion was one of those jokes in Quiz Team in high school that was like, if it if, if it's about Tolkien and it doesn't ring any bells, the answer is probably The <laughs> Silmarillion. But I didn't read it, I think, until college until I finally decided I was going to break into it. I also don't remember any Silmarillion questions in Quiz Bowl, so there you go. I don't remember what the questions were, but again, <laughs> if it was about Tolkien and it didn't, it, you know, didn't immediately talk about Frodo Baggins yeah. <laughs> or Bilbo Baggins yeah. or something, it was like usually, oh, that's from the Silmarillion. Yeah. So the Silmarillion, as discussed, was largely based on Tolkien's own notes of his story and his background. And 
as such, was not necessarily explicitly to be published. I think it was something that he had kind of thought about over the years. Certainly his publishers had encouraged him, bring us anything you can bring us. But, you know, at least to my understanding, he never, it, it was never within his lifetime ready to be published. And so then there, beco- there becomes the tall task of, of making it ready and making it readable. And I think that's one of the sort of things that keeps most people from diving into it is that it's very dense it, it it's it certainly opens dense it, it's intimidating to go through that a lot of people compare trying to read uh i know lindula to doing the the first couple books of bible yeah and and i think that that's a, a fair criticism but also i think quite deliberate i mean it's an apt comparison they sound very similar they follow a very similar structure also i think it's very funny uh, picturing daniel you mentioned uh, his publishers begging him for material, right. and what they got <laughs> was was the driest history document possible. It's incredible. It truly is. It's yeah. a work of a scope unknown. Obviously, many people have tried to duplicate a similar structure of history for the fantasy worlds they create. Right, but it's just not done like this. Not by a single person. And and Tolkien's whole thing was creating a was creating a sort of mythology, a Western mythology that was like other Western mythologies, like Norse mythology yeah. or Greek mythology for the British Isles in a way. Yeah. Um, and that's how it starts, right? But that's not how it ends. <laughs> how it ends is in this world that is sort of our world. And there's this implication that like maybe these things happened a long time ago in our own world but maybe not, or it's some parallel yeah. universe version. I mean, this, this, the story famously goes that when Tolkien sat down to write The Lord of the Rings, that Bilbo Baggins was going to get on a ship and go to this far-off island called Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, you know, very quickly dissuaded himself of that being a good idea. Right. So what we're here to do today, uh, this is going to be part of a larger discussion on the Rings of Power, but for people who have zero knowledge of the Silmarillion, we're going to talk about sort of the broad strokes of what's in that book. If if you don't know some of the sort of foundational things about Tolkien's world, what might open up all of it to you, what might make you see not just the Rings of Power, but the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings differently, and set ourselves up to talk about the new series and, and our early impressions of it. So without further ado, we started our program today by reciting the first lines of the Aina Lindale, which is the opening part, the genesis, as it were, of the Silmarillion. Adam, I would say, as much as I consider myself uh, an expert on Tolkien lore, you are encyclopedic. Well, <laughs> and, you know, I, so, I, yeah, I, I listen. I listen to the the audiobook, which is gorgeous. Yeah, mm-hmm. every spring, and and so it's it's. I, I remember it by by listen. I didn't. I don't read generally speaking when I'm doing the Silmarillion. Gotcha. So tell us about the in the beginning version of of the Silmarillion. So I think what's interesting about the world that Tolkien lays out is that the whole thing is based on singing and song, which comes up over and over again throughout all of his works as being like, hey, you need to sing to things to make this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of magical theory inside of, of Tolkien uh, wraps around songcraft and things like that. But the fundamental basis for that, the reason that, you know, singing it a mountain will cause it to, to wake up or go to sleep is down to the fact that the mountain is really just a reflection of a song that the Ainur, which are basically the... The celestial beings of yeah, this world. Yeah, more than an angel, less than a god yeah. kind of, of of creature have sung that there is this kind of thing. And it's it's really tall and it's made out of a whole lot of stone. And, and because of that singing, that's where the world comes from. 
if you are pretty good at singing, then you can sort of get your bits in there and kind of like uh, almost harmonize with what the, what they're doing in mm-hmm. order to to change the world around you. That's the the premise of of Tolkienish magic. And so once they've basically sung the world into being, there's there's one of them who's like, yeah, but what if there was like fire and explosions and stuff? And the rest are like, well, I I'm trying to it's do like, a mountain uh, over right, here. I'm so, not yeah, following it's, it's you at all. Up. Yeah. yeah, very much a Luciferian character. Yeah, and the the early version of Melkor, you can almost kind of get behind this this whole like he's just being a bit rebellious right. and it's very much a Miltonian Luciferian. It is. And it's like yeah. you can you can get his point. Right. It like, is. Discord in music is not always bad. Right. Right. Well, but but you know he he spins up some other bits in the choir and and it turns out to be this big old thing and. Ilvatar is like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Let me let me give you a new theme to think about mm-hmm. in this song, and then they keep going. And they're like, well, we'll drown this one out too. We're, we've got like the rad explosions, and then he's like, okay, listen, <laughs> one note, and it's all over with. We can we can close up the whole thing, and that kind of sets the matter more or less at rest. But he's still not really satisfied with with this conclusion, Melkor. Yeah. Now, so, can I take a moment to introduce some terms to our folks? Yeah, because I think sure, this yeah. is going to become important. Tolkien's world is in some ways monotheistic and in some ways polytheistic in the sense that there is a one true God, Eru Iluvatar, who is the, the, in fact, the creator of all things or the sort of grand design, the grand architect, let's call it, of all things. And then there are these sort of demigod type characters that have sort of purviews in the way that like a Greek god or a, a Norse god might, and they're the Valar. And though Melkor is among the Valar, and there are other names that will come up as part of this discussion that are that level of power. They they oversee particular things, but they are not all powerful in and of themselves. And then there's a sort of one step down from them, most akin to angels, if you want to make that comparison. But again, not exactly like angels, but that sort of power level, and they're called the Maiar. And a lot of the figures with which we are familiar in the grander works Gandalf starts off as a Maiar. Saruman starts off as a Maiar. Sauron starts off as a Maiar in service to particular demigods, Valar. And as we will see, and it's worth mentioning this now, the Silmarillion starts with the highest possible thought of magic, the biggest magic possible. And as the stories are being told, there becomes less and less and less and less magic in the world. That By the time we're to the Lord of the Rings, most of that magic is gone. There's still little bits here and there. We see a little bit of it, but or, not or in, hidden, such that they they right. don't dare to use. But that even in the second age, the the time the time period upon which the rings of power is based, things are much more magical even then. And in the first age, which will be that times were more magical then than they were in the second and third, and by and so on and so forth. So worth noting. Tolkien's world starts hella magical <laughs> and the magic diminishes over time. Uh, in part because the, the resonance of the song is diminishing. I think that's part of it. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, you're getting through the song. You're getting towards the end. You're, you're, you're through yeah. bits of it. Yeah. You've already been through certain portions and now you're into the next portion. And, you know, as, as you come back, there's maybe some things that will recur. Um, sure. But it, it's, it's not the beginning anymore. You're moving towards the end. Sure. And it's also worth noting that by that time, a lot of the people who were most resonant with the music aren't on Middle Earth anymore. Right. For those who have read all of the Lord of the Rings, you know how that ends. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So people who most resonate with or understand the music best aren't there anymore. Right. And you're left with more mundane folks or people who have chosen to sort of let the music escape from them. Okay, let's get back to Melkor, because obviously he's a big, important character. And, and, and sort of where this discord is sown, the one true god, Eru, 
sort of stamps it out and says, "Enough of this nonsense. We're gonna make, we're gonna make the world, and you need to stop being contrarian." And by the way, for all your contrary nonsense, you're gonna find that actually I plan around that anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would say again, worth noting for those who have not read the Silmarillion is that Iluvatar planned and wrote the entirety of the music. Right. That he always knew yeah. it was going to be there. And it's also worth noting for folks who aren't familiar with it yet that even these demigods, the power that they have is only the power that's given to them through Eru, and therefore Melkor can go and mess things up. He can corrupt things, but he can't create anything new. He has to take something that exists and mess it up in some way. Sure. Yeah, that's that's one of the, the peculiarities. Melkor has, on the one hand, he's he's very multi-talented as, mm-hmm. as uh, an Ainu goes, but he's not particularly creative because right. he's really just a contrarian at the end of the day. He can only be like, well, yeah, but like with, with sharper fangs. Yeah. <laughs> with, yeah, with more pointy bits. Oh, you like elves? Well, here yeah, are yeah. some orcs. They're pointy. Yeah, they're, they're meaner and, they, and, and, and they're stronger and they're fast. Yeah. Oh, so they're... you like ants? Well, here's a, here's a troll. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Also, I, I don't know if we've used the term Einor before, but just for purposes, yeah. Valar and Einor are the same for the purpose of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Your Valar is just the, one of the ones that decided that they were going to go live in the world yeah, uh, as compared to your, yeah. your general Ainu population. Yep. Gotcha. Once the, once the creation has happened, we move on to the sort of next phase of the story. Where do we go? Well, what's the next big the next big hit? Well, so um, <laughs> the world having been made, the Valar actually have uh, a hell of a time coming up with different ways to light the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, that's talked about oh, a wait. lot. No, yeah. no, no. They they got uh, the first first solution. We'll get a couple of pillars and we'll set them up at at, at a, a central point or in the world, and we'll stick a light on top of this yeah, thing. Just and got that some way, lamps. the world's lit. The world's lit. That's great. And we Mel, did of course, it. like, well, what if I just knock over the pillar? What, yeah. What, and they're what, like, well, we didn't think of that. And they're like, well, all right, great. Well, <laughs> I like y- y'all can't see this, but Adam did just make the gesture of a cat swatting a glass off of a countertop, yeah. which, which is, is very, yeah. which is also very much what Melkor is doing at this point <laughs> yeah. in time is just, just being like, a nuisance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's there's, just there's, being a nuisance. He's not truly yeah, it, causing a lot of problems yet. Right. Like right the, the, the damage at this point is so cosmic. Like, like they they wanted to have nice, orderly, perfect mountains, <laughs> round, very pretty seas, yep. galaxies that were laid out in nice perfect circle shapes all that stuff and melkor managed to mess up every last portion of (laughs) it and that's why the world comes in unusual shapes is is the the importance of of what like ilavatsyar said maybe you thought you were messing things up but really doesn't it look a little bit more beautiful with a little bit of imperfection going on but but the the sort of the light sources being damaged and taken down leads to Something that, uh, uh, again, we're doing this in service of the Rings of Power. This is a scene early on in the show where uh, Galadriel's brother, Finrod, ascends a hill and sees this great city and these two beautiful trees. Tell yeah. us about the city and the trees. Yeah, so the, the city is called Tyrion. It's upon a hill called Tuna, um, and they're almost always named together. And uh, it stands in the light of the two trees, the, uh, the tree Telperion, and also Laurelin, Laurelin being the golden one, Telperi on the silver, um, and they are actually going to be the parents of the sun and moon later on, because once again the lighting solution, Melkor decides to take it out. Except this time, um, where before he was knocking down the thing and it was very disruptive for the Valar. Now the elves have woken up. They've they've a, a good number of them at any rate have come over to live in Valinor with uh, the Valar, learning mm-hmm. all kinds of important things for them. 
several thousand years have passed right. of a, a fairly advanced elven society at this point. So we're already with these beautiful white ships and these great big tall towers, and they've even figured out how to do swords, and they've yeah. even made, using this wonderful light, these astonishing jewels, the Silmarils. After which the Silmarillion is named. Yeah. Yes. It, it's also worth mentioning that um, the elves are sort of this special project of Eru, They're the first children of Eru, yes. in fact, mm-hmm. and that there is a, some measure of jealousy with Melkor that one they're getting so much attention, and two, he can't make any of his own. Right, and we're back in the Milton territory, aren't we? Precisely. Right, exactly. Um, And so elves are, to Melkor, a great affront, which is why he basically spends the rest of his time screwing with them. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas the other Valar are just sort of fascinated and curious, and they've known that the children are coming for quite a while, and they've just been really excited about it, Uh, which is even funnier, because eventually they're found just by, the elves all wake up, and someone stumbles upon them. Yeah, they're just there in the world. The huntsman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Hormay finds exactly. them while he's out hunting. I, and and you have to imagine that Tulkas had to see because you know he's 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 a wrestler. Tulkas, the 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 Who wrestling is god. Who is he's, he's the wrestler guy. He's the macho man Randy yeah. Savage. Yeah, yeah. He's also like the dread weapon that they used to put Melkor down very conclusively after the the whole knock down the pillar thing, which which you know begs the question: Why don't they just keep using it? Well, again, back then there weren't any living things wandering around to right. be wrecked. Well, now with you Melkor's destruction of the trees, we can't just lose tool costs on the world. It's going to go sideways. So <laughs> tool costs is ready to put anything with a pulse and a chokehold. Just so. You know? so exactly. And laugh so, while, it, while he's right. doing he's it. He's having a great time. Yeah. And so Everyone else would not, but the, he's having a great time. The Valar sit down and they're like, okay, we got to think carefully about how to do this. And because they're <laughs> Valar, they can have telepathic discussions with one another. Mm-hmm. This can go on for centuries before they come up with a good plan. <laughs> Meanwhile... Feanor, who made these Silmarils, which were incidentally stolen directly after the murder of these trees that you see on screen. And for people who aren't as familiar with the lore, think the One Ring and then think so much more magical and so much more powerful. And there are three of them and they're so much more tempting. Like as tempting as the One Ring is, it is a sort of pales into comparison into how much people really want the Silmarils yeah. and how beautiful they are. Not just because they've got the original light of the trees from which the sun and moon are later forged, mm-hmm. but also because they're hallowed by the Star Queen, Varla, mm-hmm. who is, by and away, the most powerful of all Valar. So much so that while Melkor will, on occasion, tangle with Tulkas and lose, he will never tolerate the possibility of having to confront Varla direct, uh, Varda right. directly because... Her power is starlight. He is about the darkness. Mm-hmm. That is, that's not great for him. And starlight is the most precious of light to right. to the elves, especially. Yeah, um, yeah. and <laughs> and ultimately because that star is a uh, Silmaril, the star Arendil is weaponized. Varda is right. is what you're looking at there. Well, so he's stolen their jewels. He's murdered their trees. He's wandered off, and so these elves decide. <laughs> well, you know what? We're we're going to go deal with this. And also, while he's stealing the jewels, he murders Feanor's dad. So Feanor, who is famously one of the most skilled, athletic, powerful, he's he's named many times to be basically first of all elves mm-hmm. um, in terms of his his capacities, has decided that he's going to go and wreck this guy because he's the first of all elves. Who who can stand up to him? Right. He's, he doesn't understand exactly what he's up against yet because the Valar have always been really quite gentle with the elves. He didn't right. realize the capacity. And Melkor's whole thing is tricking people. Oh, and yeah. Not, right. And, you know, not letting them know what his power or plan is. That's his, kind of his thing, is deception. So he gathers up his seven sons 
and they all swear a terrible oath to go and get these jewels back and they don't care if they'll if if you've got the jewel and you keep it from them doesn't matter if you're a man or an elf or a valar anything they will kill you if you do not re-surrender it to them right this does not go over well with the valar <laughs> and they go and ask the elves that hang out on the sea like hey let us use your boats to go back and wage our war and the elves on the sea are like this is really not a great idea and you should wait for a minute to find out what the valar really are going to do because they haven't told you yet right well Feanor has is having none of this so he murders them um and this is called the kinslaying mm -hmm. of alqualande mm -hmm. is the name of the city he steals the boats, he goes across the sea. Some of his kinsmen who had come up to kind of help with this, they they realize too late what's going on. They're like, oh no, he murdered all those people. We'll wait till he gets back and then we'll explain and we'll have some further discussion. But he's not coming back. <laughs> Sorry, guys. He burns those ships that will never be made again mm -hmm. on the other side. This is a, another recurring theme um, in a lot of the Silmarillion. Many times uh, an artist, Feanor himself indeed, will say, hey, listen, I, I can't just crack the Silmarils open to try and use some of the light to bring the trees back to life. I, I only made it once. You you really just can't understand what you're asking of me. And in right. the same case, Yavanna, the tree goddess who made the trees, explains, hey, listen, I also, like, this was my one shot. Like, uh, anyone who's engaged in, in the endeavor of art and creation is going to tell you that, you, you know, sometimes you can... It takes a lot out of you to do yeah. these big masterpieces. Right, and, and, art, right. You know, and this art. was right. my thing. This was the thing that I made that was my life's work, so to speak, with people who don't die. Yeah, but. and, and you know, it, it's, it would be as though the Louvre burned down, somebody jumped in a time machine, went back, and, and let's never mind the thought to just get of another course. copy, and then just <laughs> says, hey, I'm so sorry, Leonardo. <laughs> the Louvre burnt. Out. Wouldn't you mind another Mona Lisa? <laughs> Just real quick, you could bang that one out. No, I, well, and that's again, that's a theme that's echoed later in the, the creation <laughs> of the One Ring being so taxing on Sauron and him putting so much of himself into it, literally and figuratively, that it being separated from him right. makes him almost powerless. Right, and, and, right. and, and its existence is tied to his personhood. Correct. And you have to, to take a moment to consider the author must surely be reading a little bit of himself into these things because the oh, certainly. to consider the the scope of what's been created here is is surely he wasn't going to do it twice. Right. Um, and so that's that's true for a lot of these futures. Well, at any rate, so the elves have now gone all the way across. They've landed back in Middle Earth. Well, there's a bunch of elves who never left Middle Earth for various reasons. And they're like, oh, thank God you're here. You've come. You've come. The Valar have sent you. Uh, and, and you're going to help us fight off uh, this guy Sauron who's back in town. And he's there's orcs and it's awful. And they're like, yeah, no, that's 100% why we are here. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. To oh, defeat yeah, 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 Sauron yeah, yeah. your behalf. Yeah, absolutely sure. sent by the Valar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not, not telling them that, in fact, what actually happened after the kinsling at Alqualande is that the Valar, in fact, banished them from Valinor. And so there's this whole group that just isn't allowed back, even if they want it to be. Because there's always sort of this tacit, before this, there's this tacit understanding that as an elf, you can return to elf heaven, to Valinor, and be there, like, you know, as long as you've behaved, <laughs> as long as you didn't kill, you're, you're kind. And then there's this- Or offend sort of, us, right? Yeah. And then there's this first group that actually, like, screws the pooch, so to speak. And, and, and the Valor like, actually, you can't come back now. And among them, I don't know all of them that will be important to the show, you, you might be better, but I, I know some of them, but- uh, who are amongst the banished elves that will be significant for viewers to know about? Well, basically any elf that decided to follow Feanor and and defy the Valar end out under this curse. But there's there's basically two categories. The ones who participated in the kinslaying 
and the ones who just happen to have followed them. And among those who happen to have followed them are both Finrod and Galadriel, as you see in, in the first portion there. They, they actually took a terribly long way around, so this is not her first time trudging through the snow. <laughs> right. <laughs> they are still under the ban of the Valar, but they don't have the really bad juju of having sworn the oath of Feanor. Mm -hmm. Because that oath, as with being able to sing things into existence and so on, you can oath yourself into a fairly bad situation sure. inside of the world of Tolkien. As should be no surprise to anyone, words are powerful to Tolkien. A person who is a linguist and, <laughs> and creates languages and finds great importance in them, that the words do have meaning. And who's a and famous Beowulf fan. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so I think this is a good setup for the fact that one other point that will be relevant to the Rings of Power, which by the time of the Lord of the Rings, especially in the, the Jackson portrayals, Elves are always sort of just like tired. <laughs> they're, they're exhausted, aren't they? And just kind of like wise and grand and and quiet. And <laughs> the elves of the first and second age in particular are not those elves. Painting with a broad brush, much more wily and vicious. Passionate. And passionate yeah. and stubborn and as and racist. Also, as we see in, in the show, like elves are very much for elves and their history is rife with stories of them doing these things for their honor and for revenge and for, you know, et cetera. So, so the ones you see in the end who are wise and, and thoughtful and deliberate, those are just the ones who didn't get killed. The end who have the trauma dumped on them over, you know, tens of thousands of years to be like, actually, maybe killing a bunch of people for some sort of silly feud isn't the answer. <laughs> or, or even if you look on the Hobbit films, like it, it takes an enormous amount out of Galadriel to confront Sauron finally. Mm -hmm. And and you have to contemplate, uh, we're getting ready to, I, I, I see clearly see her whole struggle trying to like just get to that point. Right. Yeah. Then it finally comes at that point, she's become a, a really quite powerful sorceress. Although I, I think it could strongly be argued that she would have received that training probably during her time under Melian, Amaya, who was living in Middle-earth at the time when the elves came back over. But it's it's exhausting, absolutely right. yeah. exhausting. So much so that she's going to spend basically the rest of her time in Middle-earth hanging out in <laughs> Lothlorien. Lothlorien, thank you. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't know that we need to be too exhaustive about every single sort of big conflict, but it's we're just worth noting. Okay. Yeah. Melkor was imprisoned for a while. Some other stuff is going on with the elves. They're killing one another. There's this, these conflicts. Sauron is run, uh, you know, running amok. And then there's this reappearance of Melkor because he essentially says to the other Valar after what's the length of his imprisonment? 10,000 years? I, it's it's a, a, a well lengthy time. I, they don't do a lot of measuring of time in Valinor. Sure. Um, and, and that's that's one of the unfortunate things they say about it in particular. In, in tell of years quite long, but in memory very short. Yeah. Uh, because you don't pay attention when things are great. Right. But basically, Melkor's like, guys, I'm not going to do it again. Let me out. <laughs> hey, I'll be good. I promise. And and they're like, well, if he promises. Yeah, cause, because ultimately the Valar are too good. They can't contemplate right. the level of deceit that they are observing. Right. right. They're assuming that Melkor is like them and he is not. And instead, Melkor comes back with a vengeance and goes to... Middle-earth, when it is much larger, well, it's not Middle-earth at that time, but it's, it's there's a reason. Valerian. Valerian is the portion of the world uh, that the sort of next phase of the story takes place in. The reason Middle-earth is called Middle-earth is because originally it was 
in the middle of things and not on the coast. Uh, we'll get to why it ends up having a, a, an expansive coast in a moment. But the, so the wars of Beleriand go on. And, and at this point, men show up on the scene, like humans show yeah. up on the scene. And the elves and the men team up because Morgoth, well, Melkor, now given the name Morgoth, becomes particularly bad. He steals. He has these. Well, this no, the Silmarils are back at this point. He's already got the Silmarils. He's got the Silmarils. Yeah. And they decide we're going to fight him. And this, obviously, we could go into enormous there, there amounts are, of detail here. There are a series of great battles. There, there are several really rad scenes. There are many nerds who would yell at me if we didn't uh, give a small tip of the hat to Fingolf and Viggo Morgoth. It's, it's really the closest that Tolkien's writing ever comes to being almost Howardian in its yeah. action sequences. But yeah, there, there, there are many bloodsheds. It goes on for many, many years. Basically, one elf after another dies off uh, from one century to the next. Finrod, um, in the show, they've had him killed off hunting Sauron, which is, uh, I, I think, a fair switch because they need to like keep things smooth and right. clean. But in, in particular, he gets caught by Sauron helping out a guy, Beren, who will become really relevant later on, who steals one of those Silmarils at the cost of his hand. Right. And uh, in that adventure, uh, ultimately Sauron ends up killing Finrod, um, yeah. which gives Galadriel a good amount of her right. impetus for this story. While a I'm werewolf, actually, as I recall. Uh, there was not, a werewolf. There was a werewolf. It's good, a different good, guy. So that's, that, no, 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 that's, that's, that's him. So what happens is he kills him off, but he's still doing that as cruel sorcerer inside of a yeah. dungeon. It's right. when right. Luthien shows right. up because she's come with Huon, the Hound the of Valinor, hound, yeah. who, who specifically works for Aramay and has also got this weird situation where he can only talk three times and then he dies. So he's a dog that can talk, but it kills him. <laughs> because Tolkien. Cause, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's only for delivery of important doom. Well, anyway, he, t he talks each time to either Baron or Luthien. He's their dog, basically, um, after abandoning one he's of the jerk sons of Feanor. <laughs> he is. He is. And, and he's such a good boy. That when Sauron transforms himself into a werewolf, Huon just pace him quite handily. Oh. He, he tries switching into a vampire after that so he can fly away, and he nearly gets knocked out of that as well. Correct it, it goes me if I'm wrong. They Sauron. never describe what Huon looks like. I've always envisioned him as an Irish wolfhound. Uh, he, he's a hound. The most sense. Yeah. <laughs> it, he, has, he ultimately goes down against uh, Morgoth's dog, Draugluin. He only goes down in that case, I would argue, because Draugluin is being burned from the inside by a Silmaril, which is like juicing him up and making him all kinds of crazy yeah. and wild. Sure. Um, but no, yeah, he's, he's not given any particular breed or anything. He's, he is a hound of Valinor is all right. this set of I just, yeah, Wolfhound makes sense. Yeah, I just have yeah. always envisioned him as an Irish wolfhound because they're already almost as big as horses and, <laughs> and are made for hunting wolves. Mm -hmm. So anyway. I am curious if they'll go more into the story because Finrod's the story of Finrod's death is really really interesting, and, and I think they might be building up to show us more of that actually sure. later. Hey, listen, I, I've I've for many years I've wanted to just have like a single one-off movie, Baron and Luthien, except it's from the perspective of Huon. I just I <laughs> I want that badly. I, I, it's also worth mentioning to our fans listening to this that we are recording this episode after seeing the first two episodes of the rings of power so obviously there may be more information that comes out by the time you listen to this and if you are watching the rings of power you may know more than we do at this moment they may decide to go into more of this background and more of the story but so all, all of this concludes in the war of wrath which mm. is the, yeah. the at this point the biggest battle slash war to ever happen and the you know metal as hell I, <laughs> I think there's there's two things to mention about the war of wrath yeah. so so basically that silmaril that baron steals ends up in the hands of his grandson if i'm not mistaken 
who decides, hey, I'm going to go apologize to the Valar and ask them to come and bail us out because Morgoth right. has everybody on the ropes by right. this point. Every kingdom right. of the elves has fallen, been sacked or destroyed. Right, and the Valar are essentially good, so and, of course they'll say yes. Right, and they and they just don't they don't know what's going on because they're over right. in Valinor doing their, their normal business. Well, of course. so this guy gets on a boat and he's the only person who can find his way back to Valinor. Why? Because he's the only person who ever tried doing it with a Silmaril. A number of elf expeditions tried and failed prior. Mm-hmm. Well, so he gets there, he gets off, and he's like, oh, man, I hope they don't kill me for being here, which is a real concern, um, because he is, in fact, mortal man. Right. Um, and he goes up the the mountain, and they're like, hey, 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 actually, we've been waiting for you. And he's like, oh, well, okay, let me explain the situation. And they're like, okay, yeah, cool, we'll come bail you out. So they come over, but again, the problem with dragging Tulkas into a fight is that it is <laughs> he is a nuclear destructive. Bomb. Yeah, and, that's he's the nuke, he's and that is why there is no more Balerion because if, when when you get Orame involved, you bring Tulkas in. Like uh, also, Arendil himself goes out in his ship, and in this ship, he confronts this gigantic dragon, uh, and Caligan that. Uh, Morgoth is, is larger than loosed. a mountain range. Right. It's his, yeah. his his final dread weapon that he was like, okay, I need something that can at least stand up to almost a tool cost. And mm-hmm. that does not happen. Uh, so that is the end of Morgoth in this world. He's literally forced out of the universe. And, and just worth saying, because you started Arendil, Silmaril in hand takes essentially what becomes a spaceship. It is a flying boat and crashes it into Ancalagon, killing him and becomes a literal star. <laughs> and and the star of Arendil is then the most worshipped star by the elves in the sky. <laughs> and if you want to see it yourself, um, you can observe roughly in the west on uh, most days that go down in the summertime, uh, the planet Venus, which is also Arendil. There you go. Okay, War of Wrath. End of the First Age. Balerion sinks into Balerion. the sea. Yeah. Because Balerion sinks into the sea... This part that is known as Middle Earth is now sort of westernmost Earth uh, of the of the populated portions. Obviously, Valinor is to the west, but we aren't counting it because it's like kind of special and almost heaven in West Virginia. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that. You're very welcome. So now we're into the Second Age, and the Second Age is where the Rings of Power is based, and there are many sort of big stories that are told in a portion of the Silmarillion known as the Akalabeth. And the Akalabeth translates to the downfall, yeah. which, which has a lot to do with the great kingdom of Numenor. Numenor is, I mean, it's it's Atlantis. In, in many ways. Yeah. So I think what's interesting from the show is that we've got these humans that are specifically being surveilled by the elves right. because they are descended right. from the humans who worked with Morgoth. Correct. Because in the War of Wrath, actually... Uh, almost every sort of creature, with the exception of elves, was split up more or less 50-50 between Morgoth and the powers. Right. Um, and so the ones that were loyal got taken off to this glorious land, Numenor. That was created. They, was yeah, they, raised they specifically the rose yeah. it up for them. And on the other hand, uh, these other humans who had followed Morgoth were basically left to their own devices so that they would go down and have disease and sickness and all those kinds of things and evidently surveilled by the elves. Right. And those are the ones that become the Haradrim and the Easterlings that we later see in The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien, mm. that's not great, but mm. that everybody who's from the South and from the East is bad. It's, um, it's not a great look. No, I'm, it's I'm, not. And that's another thing that I'm hoping the show will show us more of is just there are people from the South and from the East who are not terrible yeah. They are good people and humanity. And, and humanity in general in Middle-earth is not a monolith. Right. That's Tolkien made that very clear of like elves are 
kind of monolithic a little bit. Dwarves have some very specific opinions that pretty much every dwarf has. Right. Humans are just more diverse right. than anything. And adaptable. Exactly. Because they don't have the immortality or the, like, you know, the hardiness yeah. to necessarily yeah. deal with problems in the way that the other exactly. the other people do. Right. So I'm hoping the show will do what Tolkien admittedly did not do and show that side of, of what he did make a monolith out of humans. Yeah. So. so the Numenorians are these descendants of the faithful who helped defeat Morgoth. However, like all things having to do with humans, <laughs> they are corrupted over a time. <laughs> and yeah. and it happens over the course of many, many generations. It's not that fast of a thing, but basically they become powerful and then complacent in that power. And then and they bit greedy and greedy. And they start to think like uh, they become jealous of elves in the way that Morgoth was. And it was like, wait a minute, why don't we have immortality? Yeah. Why, you know, they're they're telling us that death is actually a gift. But but wait, why? <laughs> why shouldn't <laughs> I don't we? even know where I'm going? I don't yeah. even know what I'm supposed to do when I get there. And no why, one's explained any of this. And why can't we go to to Valinor? Like, yeah. why can't we go there when we when we get bored? And so these resentments come up, and eventually the sort of evil kings of Numenor arise. They are anti-elf. They stop naming themselves with elven names. They stop having good relations with the elves. They become... A bit, bit fascistic, slates. really. Yeah, fascist is the right term, uh, 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 with some of the people of Middle-earth proper, where they go and yeah. start colonizing, essentially. And robbing of resources and and that sort of thing. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but as all of that is happening, there's also uh, the appearance of this interesting seductive character. Why don't you tell us a little bit oh, about Anatar the Anatar? Bear of Gifts? Yeah. In the end of the War of Wrath, Sauron had been apprehended. Aonwe told him, hey, listen, you come back to Valinor, you go up the sacred mountain and you present yourself to the Valar and ask their forgiveness. And then he leaves him to his devices for reasons not clear. <laughs> because you should always take the right. villain, give them, give them the <laughs> ultimatum, and then walk away. Yeah, I mean, that does happen several times in the yes. Silmarillion, no, where I'll they're like, it. it's like, you need to do this thing, but I'm not going to stick around to see if you do it. Right. Like, I just, again, there's a fundamental belief among the Valar and the Maiar that everyone is like them, right. or at least all Valar and all Maiar are like them, and that's fundamentally not true with Melkor and Sauron. And, right. and if we're being fair, Aonwe actually had a whole lot to do during the War of Wrath. He's also got a, <laughs> like, he has to deal with disposition of a Silmaril. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's right. on his hands, so I, I can forgive him maybe losing track of the whole Sauron thing. Um, <laughs> well, because also, how much damage can a singular Maiar do? Right. I think well, it's how, also part how of the could thought it process. How, yeah. how could it... Well, so anyway, Sauron uh, wanders off, as as uh, the show will make clear. Clearly, we all know that he's going to come back and be an issue later on. And one of the ways in which he accomplishes this is that at this time, Sauron has not lost most of his power, as he has done by the time you meet him in Lord of the Rings. Right. At this time, Sauron still has the same properties as any other Maiar, which is to say that Maiar treat form and shape more or less as options. Right. Uh, if you want to appear as... Uh, a terrifying dark lord in this big tall armor you can do that but perhaps today the most useful thing for you to look like is this really smooth operator mm -hmm. and maybe Eminem <laughs> we have yet to see we have we yet to see we if, don't know if that for sure the the person that has been dubbed Eminem from the trailers is in fact Sauron yeah, because could just be canonically Eminem could just be canonically Eminem could and they're be. doing an eight mile crossover yeah I think that'd be a really interesting way to take the series honestly yeah so basically so anatar this this sort of smooth operator because deception is best when it's not a, a hit over the head but a sort of whisper in the ear shows up and starts going around some of the great elf lords and says hey 
I have this, I have gifts for you. I have knowledge for you. If you grant me a place to be, I will share with you this powerful knowledge. And some of the wise among the elves, Elrond, Galadriel, Gilgalad, are like, uh, mm. Kierdan, are like, uh, I don't know, buddy, I don't, mm. I don't know about you so much. <laughs> yeah, in short, people who uh, either were there the first time that Melkor lied to literally everybody or else yeah. who, who have gotten a little wise to these things over the years. And don't know that Anatar is Sauron, but no, like, mm, there's something, something about this guy. guy. I, don't, I yeah. don't know if I trust it. I don't, yeah. I don't know how I feel about this guy. Nobody knows him. Like, yeah. I, we know everybody. We're immortal. Like, yeah. who, who is this guy? And I think on the smaller scale, they're setting that up really nicely in the show of, like, Galadriel is a person in pain and she's not the only one. Right. Um, again, that's not textual necessarily because the, it's not that granular when we're talking about the Silmarillion, right. but it is, it, it's um, setting it up for that to be the case where they're like, hey, I've been burned before. Right. Not really interested in doing it again. And well, but it's also clear there's uh, plenty of people in this series who would like to just put the whole situation behind them and pretend that nothing's going on. And, and right. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's not even that they don't believe it couldn't happen again, but they're just tired. Yeah. They're just tired of dealing with of generations and generations of evil. But then there's this this elf who sort of sticks his head around the corner and goes, oh, wait, great gifts of power, you say? <laughs> Enter Celebrimbor. <laughs> oh, Celebrimbor. <laughs> who, who, again, we're going to talk more granularly about the show in a moment, is so deliciously introduced <laughs> in the Rings of Powers. It'd be like, you know, creation requires <laughs> sacrifice and and wields this great hammer of Feanor, creator of the Silmarils, as though it is, as you said, it's granddad's hammer. It but is. still, um, right. <laughs> right. still, he's just sort of casual about it. Yeah, so it's it's Feanor's grandson, and he's also going to make some wild creations. Yeah, just like granddad. And because it turned out so well for granddad. And, sure, sure, and, sure, right. and dad and, 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 and all of his uncles. Yeah. And so Anatar seduces We'll use the term seduce. In my yeah. head, I think that's I think seduction, right, seduction is the appropriate term. There, I, think I think Tolkien may probably didn't mean it that way, but I think most fans have headcanon that, in fact, uh, Anatar and Celebrimbor were more than just creative partners. I think that's fair. <laughs> so whether literally or figuratively, Anatar seduces Celebrimbor into helping him forge these great well they start with what gandalf later refers to as essays in the craft so mm. sort of test rings a little bit a little bit of invisibility here maybe a little bit of you know thaumaturgy there nothing too too crazy you know those those little like plus three percent lock picking rings you make when you got like enchanting 25 yeah exactly <laughs> when you're, you're a little masterwork ring it gives you a plus you know plus three bonus or whatever but eventually they get to work on the the real deal the main attraction and that is the nine rings for mortal men and the seven rings for dwarves. There's where we start. And for whatever reason, Anatar, who gets so excited about those first 15 rings that he's like, well, you got this under control. I'm just going to go take a little vacation for a while <laughs> uh, to the east. Just a little, a little cozy warm spot. I got PTO. I got a burn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've been at this Not for a minute. Not suspicious at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he decides he's going to go to Mordor, of course, to Mount Doom, and start working on his masterpiece, which is the One Ring. Celebrimbor, with all the knowledge that he's garnered, decides, well, you know, we've made the rings for men. We've made the rings for dwarves. What about the elves? And so he crafts three elven rings in secret, and they're the elven rings that later end up in the hands of characters that we know and love, and we can talk about that in a minute. 
But Sauron makes his one ring and he puts it on and and Celebrimbor goes, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, immediately. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah. Becomes immediately aware like, oh no. I think I've been had. Something bad <laughs> happened. And uh, Sauron reveals himself. He is now, he's been had. Yeah. And Celebrimbor gives the elven rings to the to uh, Gilgalad and Galadriel to protect them. Gilgalad gives one of the two rings that he receives to another elf named Círdan, again, just for protection. Possibly so, the oldest elf on record for for one's reference. Yeah, and boy, he'd better show up in the Rings of Power. <laughs> he's got Because he's also he's the only that. elf who can grow a beard. So that's cool. <laughs> I mean, personally, that's cool. Um, and Sauron comes back and he's like, Wait a minute, I know what you did. What'd you do with those elven rings? And Celebrimbor's like, I'm not going to tell you. I He's don't like, well, know. give me the other ones. And Celebrimbor's like, no, I don't want to. And then he kills him, and he puts him on a pike, and he uses him as a battle standard. <laughs> so, you know, don't get too attached to these images. Oh, yeah, sorry. Rakian. Spoiler alert. Celebrimbor's going to... I guess, the, yeah, we're getting into spoilers for the show, because the show is about the Acalabas. But not like, the video game. You... I'm sure a lot of a lot of your your Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of World right. players are already affiliated with a Celebrimbor. Also, um, if you didn't know you were coming to Nerd Association to get spoilers, sorry, bud. <laughs> that's what we work in here. I'm sorry that you didn't read the book in the last 70 years. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I more than time to finish the assignment. That's yeah. I, someone told me not all that long ago. I've made some reference to a detail of the Godfather, and they're like, "Oh, spoiler alert!" And I was like, "You've had 40 years to watch, 50 years to watch that movie." I care not for your spoiler alert. <laughs> or at least, like, you know, 15 years to watch a belabored analysis video on YouTube about exactly. it. Exactly. Anywho. And that is sort of the inciting incident for uh, another big old war, because now there's a, yet another Dark Lord, and he's not as cool as the first one. He's not as spiky as the first one, but he does, yeah. you know, he's got this powerful He's still got ring. the orcs like the first one, though, eh? He's still sure. got the orcs. He's got, he's got some orcs. He's, he's got he's some got trolls. A... In fact, he kind of inherited all the orcs. He's just like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah he's... he's... <laughs> He's, he's he inherited daddy's money, so yeah. to speak, and now he's back. But this war goes a little bit differently from other ones. Sure. At, and yeah, and it's well, it's worth mentioning too that the rings get distributed mm -hmm. because there's lots of humans who are more than happy to take a magic ring that's going to make them powerful, whether it's a, as a sorcerer or a king or whatever. Imagine. We know that at least three lords of Numenor take the rings. Mm -hmm. We know that at least one Easterling takes the ring. Uh, Kamul is the only ring, uh, spoiler, eventual ring wraith that we know his name. <laughs> um, gives the rings to the dwarves. The dwarves are just like, cool, man, thanks. We're going to get real rich now. <laughs> and that's what happens. And if, But of course, when you amass great wealth and you keep digging more greedily and deeper, you know, people come looking for your wealth. You, and, might, you mm -hmm. might find some Balrogs. Yeah, you, you might find dragons. some stuff you, you under the stone. You might get dragons if you yeah. don't keep your gold cleaned up. That's but, when we're finally getting into portions that uh, anyone who has seen the Lord of the Rings movies or read the Lord of the Rings, you're at least yeah. marginally familiar with these things. <laughs> right. Um, and and it's worth it's only worth saying here that basically those rings don't work on the dwarves the way Sauron expects them to. They're hardier than he expects, but it still brings bad fortune to them. And yes, so a new war begins uh, with people who are a little less pointy and a little less shiny all around. And... Uh, these sort of faithful among the Numenorians decide, well, you know what? We we are uh, not in favor of this guy, Sauron. And they join with the elves and they fight him. And you, again, well, if you're, we're now in the territory where if you are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, you know that Sauron falls in this war, the, la the war of the last alliance 
of elves and men. Well, there's there's another portion that comes before this, right? Yeah, because you're uh, a, a good portion of of your Numenorians are not faithful. That's that's true. Thank you. I am but getting but they myself. heard about this guy oh, we, Sauron. Yeah, we kind of got a. This is almost like a tangent because we forgot to talk about the. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. so so before that war, of the last alliance, uh, these these guys over in Numenor, even they're not into this whole elf situation. They heard about this guy Sauron, and this particularly proud Numenorian who has decided to call himself king of men, heard that Sauron's calling himself king of men. <laughs> and he's like, like no, uh-uh. as mm-hmm. it happens, I'm actually the king of, of the most powerful men. I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. This yeah. is so embarrassing. <laughs> they wore the same dress to the party. and Well, so he picks up his army. He goes over. He sets himself up on a hill. And he's got like his banners. And he's got like a pavilion is, is what it's written in. And I'm like, oh, he brought like, he, this is glamping. Right. Is where we are. Like, <laughs> exactly. like he's got like He's grapes. got the camper van. And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we, we've got like some ice stuff in here. He's explained to people that you cannot move away from water in order to win sieges. And... He says, Sauron, come out here and submit to me. And to really everyone's astonishment, Sauron's like, oh, absolutely. Why would I not want to submit to you, daddy? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. And so begins the seduction of the kings of Numenor. Right. And uh, Sauron basically almost instantly says, I'll be good. And they're like, all right, well, we're going to make Why you one would of you the vizier. Again, yeah. right. Well, Again, <laughs> it's a great theme of the story that everyone just believes everyone else when they're yeah. like, I promise I'm not going to do it again. And, and everyone's like, let oh, that be yeah. a lesson in your relationships, by the way. Don't trust. Don't trust people like that. Um, <laughs> don't ever trust people. Don't ever no. trust people. That's if you take away one thing <laughs> yeah. today, so, let it be that. Don't so trust people. Sauron becomes one of the viziers, essentially encourages Morgoth worship among the Numenorians. And they, they do it. And they build this great, yeah, yeah, they build this great temple to Morgoth. And they they're like, actually, that sounds him. great. And they start burning people. Yeah. yeah, and they stop using the Elvish language and they start persecuting people who are in favor of that sort of thing. And then they're like... And very critically, they stop paying any kind of homage to Ilavatar, mm-hmm. which they yeah. used to do because they had a big old mountain for it. And right. then they decide, you know... The Valar said that we can only sail so far to the west and that we can't sail to Valinor. But that's where they're keeping all the immortality and we want some. So we're going to declare war on God. (laughs) And they get in their ships and they sail west and they they decide we're going to do we're going to do war on the gods. And so that that king gets off his ships. He he goes and plants himself <laughs> in front of these great holy mountains. He sees all the 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 Kalakiria, the way of light. There's there's all the elven hosts and all these kinds of things. But the elven hosts aren't doing anything. No one's attacking them. No. Because in fact, Iluvatar himself reaches down, cracks open the sea, sinks Numenor, collapses the mountains on top of those kings. And it, there's a vague reference at this point that they're going to stay under those mountains until the final battle at the end. It's, it's, it's the very, end time, it's yeah. almost very, very, um, uh, Hillman betrayer yeah. kind of situation. It's, it may be a prototype for that story later on. And also that's the end of Newman war. And by the way, yeah, say it now, by the way, this flat world, now it's round. Yeah, the, the, we, we did not mention that, in fact, yeah. the Earth had been flat. Arda had been flat up until this point, And now it is it is round. But if you're an elf mm-hmm. and you've been, if, if you're an elf and you're tired, really, but you've been you've been pretty good, you're, you're all right, fine. We'll, we'll give you we'll give you a freebie. Then you can still sail, quote, the straight path to Valinor, which they give you a, an image of what that kind of looks right. like in the in the series now. And. 
Um, I, I think that they've chosen perfectly good. It looks like you're coming to some sort of fay crossing situation. Yeah, yeah it looks nice. Um, where a, a, a portion that should slope off and go into the rest of the sea instead just goes straight over to Valinor. Um, and it's sort of like a spaceship. Yeah. Because <laughs> Valinor right. kind of just, I mean, it doesn't exist on the material right, plane let's, exactly let's, in the same right. way. but Yeah, let's um, be clear that when the world is made round... Valinor's not on it anymore. Right. It just sort of, right. yeah, it stays in place yeah. and the world curves away from it, essentially. Yeah. Um, and it's just wild that Elf Heaven is just a space. <laughs> like, you get on a spaceship, essentially, and yeah. go to Elf Heaven. Well, you know, it's, it's said that there are places in Valinor where you can look out to see the, the great encircling night. Yeah. Which is wild because, like, again, when it was flat, there, there would be an edge to it at some point, Correct. which is where you find the Halls of the Dead and all those kinds of things. Yeah. So Sauron is on Numenor when it sinks. And he goes down with the ship, but he's Sauron and he's wily. Yep. And he loses his ability to change form as a sort of sacrifice to keep himself alive. But his spirit endures and he goes back to Mordor. And then, yes, apologies. <laughs> then the War of the Last <laughs> Then the Alliance. Last Yeah, but at, but at this point, of course, he's he's got his ring back and all that kind of thing. He's ready to go to his war, but sure. he's lost the ability to trick people. He can no longer assume the fair form of Anatar. That's the end of of Sauron the trickery now he's just down to being a dark lord now he's really just right back where his boss started right stuck behind just hit things right just hiding out in his castle stuck behind an army of orcs and he should have known this was a losing strategy from the outset so he goes to war with the last alliance of elves and men characters that are famous in that battle Gil-galad is there Elendil the king of the righteous Numenorians, his son Isildur is there. His sons, both of them are there. Uh, is Anarion there Isildur too? Isildur and Anarion. I don't remember what Anarion's disposition. I, he had to be there. Probably. Anyway. Um, uh, Elrond is probably there. I mean, we see him in the movie. He's there, but he's almost certainly there. And they decide it's many, many years of war. In, in the movies, they make it seem like it's this one big final battle, but it's this great long war. But eventually, Sauron's just like... <sighs> I guess I have to do it myself. Everything and, myself. And competence. And just waltzes onto the battlefield, starts wrecking shop until the two great kings of elves and men die in conflict with him, but also bring him down. And then Isildur famously cuts the ring from Sauron's And then finger. utterly fumbles the opportunity to destroy it. <laughs> Isildur! <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, <laughs> no. This is, again, a very abbreviated version. And then, of course, you know, uh, the Silmarillion goes on to talk more specifically about the rings and what they are and how they work and the Astari a little bit. Uh, the Astari being the five wizards, uh, of which Gandalf, Radagast, and Saruman are three of them. Uh, the other two are either Alatar and Palando or Marinatar and Ramastamo, or maybe both because all of the wizards had one name and then when they came to Middle-earth, they got new names. Anyway, uh, so they're in there somewhere and basically after, well, during and then after the whole thing with Sauron, the Istari are Maiar, they are angels, quote unquote, that are sent to sort of oversee things and sent to different parts of the world to make sure that evil doesn't have a chance to take root or flourish. So their story is also part of that, though fairly tangential to the rest of the of the story. Any other notes on the Silmarillion and especially where it relates to the Rings of Power? Uh, I think it might be worth noting that when um, Numenor goes down, as as we can assume that we're going to see take place in this show, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all the Numenorians that end up going down. The ones who yeah. are faithful are they they do they do go through the Ringer. Sure. They don't get to take very much of Numenor with them. 
um, but they do get deposited on Middle Earth um, by the Sea God in in a, a relatively rough but ultimately survivable Correct. way. Um, and they go on to form your uh, enlightened Numenorean uh, survivor kingdoms of Arnor and Gondor, which is where, of course, the rest of your Gondorian kings and so on come from. Right. And uh, and one of the things that they b- b- sneak away from Numenor is a, a white sapling that they uh, plant, and then it gets killed, but then they snuck one away, and then they plant it again, and it ends up in Minas Tirith. <laughs> and they also so, took away those uh, seeing stone those things. Those seeing stone yeah, things. Really handy. Those things. Those palantir uh, that give, yeah. You, that you then see in Lord of the Rings. So some, again, some of the sort of most powerful and interesting relics of the Lord of the Rings are just holdovers from the, that much greater the, age. The stuff they could <laughs> scrape together on their way out the door of Numenor right. before it went yeah. down. Well, I think we have done a, a pretty good flyover of the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion is very dense, but I promise if you're a fan of the Lord of the Rings, if you like the world that Tolkien has built, it's worth reading or at least listening to as adam has alluded to a great audiobook i want to thank my guests adam Locke and jonah smith for coming on and talking today about the silmarillion and actually i'm going to have them back almost immediately to talk about the rings of power the first couple of episodes our impressions our predictions so stay tuned if in the meantime you want to talk to us you can find nerd association on twitter our handle is at N-E-R-D underscore A-S-S-O-C. You can reach out to us via Gmail, nerdasoc at gmail.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about in the future or even come on and be one of our nerds. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah.